Chapter 8, Parts 1 and 2 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 8, Parts 1 and 2. Chapter 8 a world at war part one it was only very slowly that bert got hold of this idea that the whole world was at war that he formed any image at all of the crowded country south of these arctic solitudes stricken with terror and dismay as these newborn aerial navies swept across their skies he was not used to thinking of the world as a whole but as a limitless hinterland of happenings beyond the range of his immediate vision war in his imagination was something a source of news and emotion that happened in a restricted area called the seat of war but now the whole atmosphere was the seat of war and every land a cockpit so closely had the nations raced along the path of research and invention so secret and yet so parallel had been their plans and acquisitions that it was within a few hours of the launching of the first fleet in franconia that an asiatic armada beat its westward way across high above the marveling millions in the plain of the ganges but the preparations of the confederation of eastern asia had been on an altogether more colossal scale than the german with this step, said Tan Ting Siang, we overtake and pass the West. We recover the peace of the world that these barbarians have destroyed. Their secrecy and swiftness and inventions had far surpassed those of the Germans, and where the Germans had had a hundred men at work, the Asiatics had ten thousand. There came to their great aeronautic parks at Chin Si Fu and Tsingyen, by the monorails that now laced the whole surface of China, a limitless supply of skilled and able workmen, workmen far above the average European in industrial efficiency. The news of the German world's surprise simply quickened their efforts. At the time of the bombardment of New York, it is doubtful if the Germans had 300 airships altogether in the world. The score of Asiatic fleets flying east and west and south must have numbered several thousand. Moreover, the Asiatics had a real fighting flying machine, the Niais, as they were called, a light but quite efficient weapon, infinitely superior to the German Drachenflieger. Like that, it was a one-man machine, but it was built very lightly of steel and cane and chemical silk, with a transverse engine and a flapping side wing. The aeronaut carried a gun firing explosive bullets loaded with oxygen, and in addition, and true to the best tradition of Japan, a sword. Mostly they were Japanese, and it is characteristic that from the first it was contemplated that the aeronaut should be a swordsman. The wings of these flyers had bat-like hooks forward by which they were to cling to their antagonist's gas chambers while boarding him. These light-flying machines were carried with the fleets, and also sent overland or by sea to the front with the men. They were capable of flights of from two to five hundred miles, according to the wind. So, hard upon the uprush of the first German air fleet, these Asiatic swarms took to the atmosphere. Instantly, every organized government in the world was frantically and vehemently building airships, and whatever approach to a flying machine its inventors had discovered. 
There was no time for diplomacy. Warnings and ultimatums were telegraphed to and fro, and in a few hours all the panic-fierce world was openly at war, and at war in the most complicated way. For Britain and France and Italy had declared war upon Germany and outraged Swiss neutrality. India, at the sight of Asiatic airships, had broken into Hindu insurrection in Bengal and a Mohammedan revolt hostile to this in the northwest provinces the latter spreading like wildflower from gobi to the gold coast and the confederation of eastern asia had seized the oil wells of burma and was impartially attacking america and germany in a week they were building airships in damascus and cairo and johannesburg australia and new zealand were frantically equipping themselves one unique and terrifying aspect of this development was the swiftness with which these monsters could be produced to build an ironclad took from two to four years an airship could be put together in as many weeks moreover compared with even a torpedo boat the airship was remarkably simple to construct given the air chamber material the engines the gas plant and the design it was really not more complicated and far easier than an ordinary wooden boat had been a hundred years before and now from cape horn to nova zembla and from canton round to canton again there were factories and workshops and industrial resources and the german airships were barely in sight of the atlantic waters the first asiatic fleet was scarcely reported from upper burma before the fantastic fabric of credit and finance that had held the world together economically for a hundred years strained and snapped a tornado of realization swept through every stock exchange in the world. Banks stopped payment, business shrank, and ceased. Factories ran on for a day or so by a sort of inertia, completing the orders of bankrupt and extinguished customers, then stopped. The New York Burt Smallway saw, for all its glare of light and traffic, was in the pit of an economic and financial collapse unparalleled in history. The flow of the food supply was already a little checked and before the world war had lasted two weeks by the time that is that mast was rigged in labrador there was not a city or town in the world outside china however far from the actual centers of destruction where police and government were not adopting special emergency methods to deal with the want of food and a glut of unemployed people the special peculiarities of aerial warfare were of such a nature as to trend once it had begun, almost inevitably towards social disorganization. The first of these peculiarities was brought home to the Germans in their attack upon New York, the immense power of destruction an airship has over the thing below, and its relative inability to occupy, or police, or guard, or garrison, a surrendered position. Necessarily, in the face of urban populations, in a state of economic disorganization, and infuriated and starving, this led to violent and destructive collisions, and even where the air fleet floated inactive above, there would be civil conflict and passionate disorder below. Nothing comparable to this state of affairs had been known in the previous history of warfare, unless we take such a case as that of a nineteenth-century warship attacking some large savage or barbaric settlement, or one of those naval bombardments that disfigure the history of Great Britain in the late eighteenth century. Then, 
Indeed, there had been cruelties and destruction that faintly foreshadowed the horrors of the aerial war. Moreover, before the twentieth century, the world had had but one experience, and that a comparatively light one, in the communist insurrection of Paris, 1871, of the possibilities of a modern urban population under warlike stresses. A second peculiarity of airship war, as it first came to the world, that also made for social collapse, was the ineffectiveness of the early airships against each other. Upon anything below, they could rain explosives in the most deadly fashion. Forts and ships and cities lay at their mercy. But unless they were prepared for a suicidal grapple, they could do remarkably little mischief to each other. The armament of the huge German airships, big as the biggest mammoth liners afloat, was one machine gun that could easily have been packed up on a couple of mules. In addition, when it became evident that the air must be fought for, the air sailors were provided with rifles with explosive bullets of oxygen, or inflammable substance, but no airship at any time ever carried as much in the way of guns and armor as the smallest gunboat on the navy list had been accustomed to do. Consequently, when these monsters met in battle, they maneuvered for the upper place, or grappled and fought like junks, throwing grenades, fighting hand-to-hand -hand in an entirely medieval fashion. The risks of a collapse and fall on either side came near to balancing in every case the chances of victory. As a consequence, and after their first experiences of battle, one finds a growing tendency on the part of the air fleet admirals to evade joining battle and to seek rather the moral advantage of a destructive counter-attack. And if the airships were too ineffective, the early Drachenflieger were either too unstable, like the German, or too light, like the Japanese, to produce immediately decisive results. Later, it is true, the Brazilians launched a flying machine of a type and scale that was capable of dealing with an airship, but they built only three or four. They operated only in South America, and they vanished from history untraceably in the time when world bankruptcy put a stop to all further engineering production on any considerable scale. The third peculiarity of aerial warfare was that it was at once enormously destructive and entirely indecisive. It had this unique feature, that both sides lay open to punitive attack. In all previous forms of war, both by land and sea, the losing side was speedily unable to raid its antagonist's territory and the communications. One fought on a front, and behind that front the winner's supplies and resources, his towns and factories and capital, the peace of his country, were secure. If the war was a naval one, you destroyed your enemy's battle fleet and then blockaded his ports, secured his coaling stations, and hunted down any stray cruisers that threatened your ports of commerce. But to blockade and watch a coastline is one thing. To blockade and watch the whole surface of a country is another. And cruisers and privateers are things that take long to make, that cannot be packed up and hidden and carried unostentatiously from point to point. In aerial war, the stronger side, even supposing it destroyed the main battle fleet of the weaker, had then either to patrol and watch or destroy every possible point at which he might produce another and perhaps a novel and more deadly form of flyer. It meant darkening his air with airships. 
It meant building them by the thousand, and making aeronauts by the hundred thousand. A small, uninitiated airship could be hidden in a railway shed, in a village street, in a wood. A flying machine is even less conspicuous. And in the air are no streets, no channels, no point where one can say of an antagonist, if he wants to reach my capital he must come by here. In the air all directions lead everywhere. Consequently, it was impossible to end a war by any of the established methods. A. Having outnumbered and overwhelmed. B. Hovers, a thousand airships strong, over his capital, threatening to bombard it, unless B. submits. B. Replies by wireless telegraphy that he is now in the act of bombarding the chief manufacturing city of A. by means of three raider airships. A. denounces B's raiders as pirates, and so forth, bombards B's capital, and sets off to hunt down B's airships, while B, in a state of passionate emotion and heroic unconquerableness, sets to work amidst his ruins, making fresh airships and explosives for the benefit of A. The war became, perforce, a universal guerrilla war, a war inextricably involving civilians and homes and all the apparatus of social life. These aspects of aerial fighting took the world by surprise. There had been no foresight to deduce these consequences. If there had been, the world would have arranged for a universal peace conference in 1900. But mechanical invention had gone faster than intellectual and social organization, and the world, with its silly old flags, its silly, unmeaning tradition of nationality, its cheap newspapers and cheaper passions and imperialisms, its base commercial motives and habitual insincerities and vulgarities, its race lies and conflicts, was taken by surprise. Once the war began, there was no stopping it. The flimsy fabric of credit that had grown with no man foreseeing, and that had held these hundreds of millions in an economic interdependence that no man clearly understood, dissolved in panic. Everywhere went the airships dropping bombs, destroying any hope of a rally, and everywhere below were economic catastrophe, starving worldless people, rioting, and social disorder. Whatever constrictive guiding intelligence there had been among the nations vanished in the passionate stresses of the time. Such newspapers and documents and histories as survive from this period all tell one universal story of towns and cities with a food supply interrupted and their streets congested with starving unemployed, of crises in administration and states of siege, of provisional governments and councils of defense, and in the cases of India and Egypt, insurrectionary committees taking charge of the rearming of the population, of the making of batteries and gun pits, of the vehement manufacture of airships and flying machines. One sees these things in glimpses, in illuminated moments, as if through a driving reek of clouds going on all over the world, it was the dissolution of an age. It was the collapse of the civilization that had trusted to machinery, and the instruments of its destruction were machines. But while the collapse of the previous great civilization, that of Rome, had been a matter of centuries, had been a thing of phase and phase, like the aging and dying of a man, 
This, like his killing by railway or motor car, was one swift, conclusive smashing and an end. Part 2 the early battles of the aerial war were no doubt determined by attempts to realize the old naval maxim, to ascertain the position of the enemy's fleet and to destroy it. There was first the Battle of the Bernese Oberland, in which the Italian and French navigables, in their flank raid upon the Franconian Park, were assailed by the Swiss experimental squadron, supported as the day wore on by German airships and then the encounter of the British Winterhouse Dunn aeroplanes with three unfortunate Germans. Then came the Battle of North India, in which the entire Anglo-Indian aeronautic settlement establishment fought for three days against overwhelming odds, and was dispersed and destroyed in detail. And simultaneously, with the beginning of that, commenced the momentous struggle of the Germans and Asiatics that is usually known as the Battle of Niagara because of the objective of the Asiatic attack, but it passed gradually into a sporadic conflict over half a continent. Such German airships as escaped destruction in battle descended and surrendered to the Americans, and were remanned, and in the end it became a series of pitiless and heroic encounters between the Americans, savagely resolved to exterminate their enemies, and a continually reinforced army of invasion from Asia, quartered upon the Pacific Slope, and supported by an immense fleet. From the first, the war in America was fought with implacable bitterness. No quarter was asked, no prisoners were taken. With ferocious and magnificent energy, the Americans constructed and launched ship after ship to battle and perish against the Asiatic multitudes. All other affairs were subordinate to this war. The whole population was presently living or dying for it. Presently, as I shall tell, the white men found in the Butteridge machine a weapon that could meet and fight the flying machines of the Asiatic swordsmen. The Asiatic invasion of America completely effaced the German-American conflict. It vanishes from history. At first, it had seemed to promise quite sufficient tragedy in itself beginning as it did in unforgettable massacre after the destruction of central new york all america had risen like one man resolved to die a thousand deaths rather than submit to germany the germans grimly resolved upon beating the americans into submission and following out the plans developed by the prince had seized niagara in order to avail themselves of its enormous power works expelled all its inhabitants and made a desert of its environs as far as buffalo they had also, directly Great Britain and France declare war, wrecked the country upon the Canadian side for nearly ten miles inland. They began to bring up men and material from the fleet off the east coast, stringing out to and fro like bees getting honey. It was then that the Asiatic forces appeared, and it was in their attack upon this German base at Niagara that the air fleets of east and west first met and the greater issue became clear. One conspicuous peculiarity of the early aerial fighting arose from the profound secrecy with which the airships had been prepared. Each power had had but the dimmest inkling of the schemes of its rivals, and even experiments with its own devices were limited by the needs of secrecy. None of the designers of airships and aeroplanes had known clearly what their inventions might have to fight. Many had not imagined they would have to fight anything whatever in the air, and had planned them only for the dropping of explosives. 
Such had been the German idea. The only weapon for fighting another airship, with which the Franconian fleet had been provided, was the machine gun forward. Only after the fight over New York were the men given short rifles with detonating bullets. Theoretically, the Drachenflieger were to have been the fighting weapon. They were declared to be aerial torpedo boats, and the aeronaut was supposed to swoop close to his antagonist and cast his bombs as he whirled past. But indeed, these contrivances were hopelessly unstable. Not one-third in any engagement succeeded in getting back to the mother airship. The rest were either smashed up or grounded. The Allied Chino-Japanese fleet made the same distinction as the Germans between airships and fighting machines heavier than air. But the type in both cases was entirely different from the Occidental models, and it is eloquent of the vigor with which these great people took up and bettered the European methods of scientific research in almost every particular the invention of Asiatic engineers. Chief among these, it is worth remarking, was Mohini K. Chatterjee, a political exile who had formerly served in the British Indian Aeronautic Park at Lahore. The German airship was fish-shaped, with a blunted head. The Asiatic airship was also fish-shaped, but not so much on the lines of a cod or goby as of a ray or sole. It had a wide, flat underside, unbroken by windows or any opening, except along the middle line. Its cabins occupied its axis, with a sort of bridge-deck above, and the gas chambers gave the whole affair the shape of a gypsy's hooped tent, except that it was much flatter. The German airship was essentially a navigable balloon, very much lighter than air. The Asiatic airship was very little lighter than air, and skimmed through it with much greater velocity, if with considerably less stability. They carried fore and aft guns, the latter much the larger, throwing inflammatory shells, and in addition they had nests for riflemen on both the upper and the underside. Light as this armament was, in comparison with the smallest gunboat that ever sailed, it was sufficient for them to outfight as well as outfly the German monster airships. In action, they flew to get behind or over the Germans. They even dashed underneath, avoiding only passing immediately beneath the magazine, and then, as soon as they had crossed, let fly with their rear gun, and sent flares or oxygen shells into the antagonist's gas chambers. It was not in their airships, but, as I have said, in their flying machines proper that the strength of the Asiatics lay. Next only to the Butteridge machine, these were certainly the most efficient, heavier-than-air flyers that had ever appeared. They were the invention of a Japanese artist, and they differed in type extremely from the box-kite quality of the German Drachenflieger. They had curiously curved, flexible side wings, more like bent butterflies' wings than anything else and made of a substance like celluloid and of brightly painted silk, and they had a long hummingbird tail. At the forward corner of the wings were hooks, rather like the claws of a bat, by which the machine could catch and hang and tear at the walls of an airship's gas chamber. The solitary rider sat between the wings above a transverse explosive engine, an explosive engine that differed in no essential particular from those in use in the light motor bicycles of the period. Below was a single large wheel. The rider sat astride of a saddle, as in the Butteridge machine, 
and he carried a large double-edged two-handed sword in addition to his explosive bullet-firing rifle. End of chapter 8, parts 1 and 2 Recording by William Tomko